Welcome to Volume 3 of Jerry Tales. Jerry Crispin is a living legend, and Joel and I sat down for over an hour and a half to talk history, now, and future state of the recruitment industry. Enjoy after a word from our sponsor. Okay, so you need candidates fast, and you're sick and tired of being nickeled and dimed to death. I totally get it. You should check out FlexPlan from Next. It's perfect for employers and staffing firms who are busy. They need candidates and flexible pricing now. FlexPlan is also perfect for recruitment ad agencies who need targeted distribution and tools to help demonstrate client ROI. If you're sick and tired of all the BS, hassle, and just want candidates now, check out Next and FlexPlan with over 70 million members. Next takes all of your jobs and puts each one in front of the best candidates and across their entire ecosystem. No muss, no fuss. Next does all the work and FlexPlan makes it cost effective. Check out everything Next has to offer at hiring.next.com. That's hiring.next.com. And if you like to save even more cash, just go to chadcheese.com, scroll down and click on the next logo, discounts aplenty. Remember, next with the double X, not the triple X. Hide your kids, lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Are you buying into the hype of all the new stuff? You know, chatbots, AI, programmatic. I mean, are you buying into all of it, some of it? Like, what's your what's your sense? I buy uh, so I buy into all of it as a as an experiment. Um, I'm I obviously have been an, always a fan of the fact that no matter how radical <laughs> the technology is, there's always an opportunity to play with it, experiment with it, and and obviously if you don't do that, it takes it takes so much longer to improve. And we know that, especially when you're looking at machine learning tools. You, you need to collect data and it continues to improve on collective data. The problem is that there's no standard that helps us better understand how one algorithm might be better than another or how to build algorithms in a way that, uh, that truly impacts uh, the fairness of the outcome um, and minimizes the um, the institutionalization of unconscious bias. So question about that is, I mean, <clears throat> there are some systems out there, not yeah. many, but there are some systems that are more transparent, what we call white box, yep. so that you can go in and you can see how you actually got to this uh, th- this flow of candidates versus black box where you're just not going to know. It's like, well, well, why did we come up with this result set? <clears throat> but even the white box, so-called white box, often is proprietary and therefore is not going to be shared with the with the company that is buying it it is it's it's a white box to the science 
within the co- the vendor, um, and that's that continues to be a problem. To me, it should be discoverable, mm-hmm. and maybe I have to write an NDA or something else if I buy the product. But fundamentally, I need to satisfy myself. And the advantage, I think, is that many of the larger companies now have scientists who work within talent acquisition. So analysts who are really, really good at what they do. Um, and those those companies should be able to truly audit um, the technologies that they're buying into. Well, and, and there's only a couple companies right now that really insist on and it. And shouldn't, shouldn't companies really focus? I mean, when you're trying to actually gain leverage over a prospective vendor that's saying, no, this is black box. Um, if I'm a federal contractor, I have to de- I have to be able to defend what I do and how I do it. If I can't, if I don't even know how I'm doing it and how this algorithm could prospectively be biasing our decisions, right? Our slates, right. our candidate slates. I can't defend it. I can't, and that could prospectively put my company in risk of losing hundreds of millions of dollars in federal contractors or in contracts or prospectively billions of dollars in federal contracts. Well, I, I agree. Uh, you know, and and while it is a concern, um, it's another reason for, for piloting rather than uh, going wholeheartedly into some of the technology at this point um, until you've satisfied yourself that you can defend it or that or that your vendor can defend it. Right. Um, with their capability to disclose what they're doing and that they're willing to be uh, co-op to, to be partners with you, which mm-hmm. means that that they're willing to be responsible um, for defending that. They have to take on. The I, I've talked to a number of, ve- of vendors yeah. who are heavily engaged in all of this, who by and large say, no, I'm just building a platform. What they do with it is their problem, and I, I have no responsibility. And so, therefore, our lawyers are telling us that if our clients get sued for bias, we're not going to be responsible. And I'm going, you may think that's so, uh-huh. but I don't believe that when, it, when push comes to shove, that's going to happen. No. And if you're not, if you don't have enough insurance to cover that, you're, you're at risk as well. And, and it's an attitude, by the way, that I just don't accept. The fact is, if you if you have tools and capability for me to be able to improve my recruitment process and you want me to invest heavily in, in you know, using that, then I want a partner. I don't want a vendor. Yeah. And so and so fundamentally, a partner to me is somebody who accepts part of this risk. Jerry, you have a you have a unique vision on the global market. You do a lot of traveling. You you know you, you see a lot of people around the uh, around the world. And yep. give us a sense of like what you're seeing globally, whether it's from vendors and technology or economies or just general employment around the world. Um, I have some points of view because I I do you know go out there on a regular basis. Um, I will tell you though that I'm not uh, as uh, knowledgeable as some of the folks like um, Kevin Wheeler and others who really spend a great deal of time uh, consulting literally all over the world. But you know, I, I try to tap into all of the people that I know in, in terms of trying to confirm some of the observations that I make when I go out there. Um, for those who don't know, uh, you know, once a year I take a delegation to a different country. 
China Gorman and I've been doing that for a number of years. We've been to mm-hmm. uh, China and Japan and uh, and Cuba <laughs> and, and a variety of other places over the last few years. Uh, Eastern Europe this past year, and 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 the reason why I, I mention that is because we get to talk not only with employers in those locations, but we spend time with the government to better understand how incentives. Uh, work to keep people at work as well as as engage them to want to come to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk to uh, professors who are teaching MBAs and business leaders, uh, as well as spending time with students coming out of school in terms of what their aspirations are. And we see differences all over the world that that fundamentally would require different models of recruiting, in my opinion. Different and and to some degree differences in terms of how we look at at work and some countries culturally are not ready for the kind of work that we take for granted. We take for granted that you have a diverse workforce. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we work really hard to make that happen. We we know all the problems in in trying to do that well, but in other countries, in many cases, laws actually fully discriminate in a variety of different ways. Everything from age to gender to race to ethnicity to whatever. They are embedded in the culture and and in how the government operates to incent work. And not a lot of multinationals really spend enough time thinking through, you know, those issues and how they're going to address them differently in each of the countries that they operate. So I find it kind of fascinating. So for you just take something that we probably know a lot about. In uh, Germany, uh-huh. they have they have accepted a million and a half people in the last 18 months mm-hmm. who were not from EMEA, many obviously from Syria and, and yep. other countries, and struggle to, you know, engage them and incorporate them into their society help them adjust to a new world, if you will, but have plenty of incentives for corporations and work to be able to uh, put them to work. And as a result, they end up, even with all of the problems, a very robust growing economy in which they have um, extraordinary access to workers right across the border. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In um, Czechoslovakia, um, we spoke with uh, a, 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 the American embassy and the woman who uh, was the, was uh, involved in the embassy had just come from Germany and she and she mentioned the the 1.6 million I think something like that. She says so in this in the last eighteen months, how many people do you think uh, the Czech Republic? has has taken in from outside of EMEA? And the answer was 12. <laughs> and and so so she says, you know, and and the unemployment rate in in Prague is is like zero. Right. It's there is no mm-hmm. there is no employment. Uh, I mean there's no one who's not employed right. who wants to be employed. But they are all they are all from Czechoslovakia, <laughs> or or some guest workers from Ukraine, and as a result, their economy may in fact devolve about three percent this year because yeah. they don't have enough people. Right. Yeah. Because they don't allow enough people to work. 
Um, and therein lies some really interesting differences that to, uh, to some degree we need to think about, you know, in our own country, um, where we have such poor discussions about immigration and, mm -hmm. and guest workers and, you know, the extent to which we would acquire and welcome right. people right. with skills and capabilities from all over the world to help us grow our economy. <laughs> Um, as opposed to the fear that somehow they're going to take our jobs as if as if jobs are, you know, finite. Well, they're they're based upon our ability to move forward, not not move backwards. And you spend a lot of time in Japan. They have a pretty unique set of problems, don't they? Well, well, Japan is a is a whole different uh, set of issues. And we were very fortunate to be able to uh, dig pretty deep in that and and. Uh, the Japanese are not necessarily known for wanting to share a lot of information about who they are. They love studying everybody else. Oh, yeah. Um, but we were able to um, have some very open and honest um, um, discussions with them. And their their population is actually um, being reduced on average about 500,000 people a year, um, in part because no one gets to come in. They're probably one of the most closed societies in the world. Uh, being on an island for the last uh, umpteen thousand years, right. and uh, and the, so their culture is is very um, singular, um, and as a result, they have I think currently about fifty percent of their entire population, which again is getting smaller, yeah. is already over sixty five, and in the next few years may get to the point where it's over 60% of their population is over 65. Now that means that 35% <laughs> are supporting in some way, shape or no. form those 65. Big, big imbalance. Um, percent. And and that's not a good thing. Well, thank, thank God the robots are coming to save everyone. They, they believe there's two things. One, that the robots will come. Um, and they believe that the percentage of women will increase significantly working in the workforce. But but there's also kind of an embedded approach to how women are viewed in terms of their ability to handle certain kinds of jobs that I don't know if that's going to change. And their approach to work is such that the average person working in Japan right now is doing something north of 80 hours a week. <laughs> Not sustainable. And well, you know, they've been sustaining it for a while, but, but, but 80 hours a week. Yeah. But imagine, imagine, you know, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll share one of the, one of the things that, that happened. There was a conversation because last year, a woman who was working 80 hours a week and then went home and had to deal with all of the issues from her family, killed herself. They have a very high um, suicide rate, suicide rates in the, in the developed countries. Suicide and rate. and this became a kind of a national uh, shame issue. And the government told us they they struggled with you know, what do we do about this? And they came up with a solution. And the solution that they came up with was uh, passing a law that stated that every corporation must make their employees go home after eight o'clock at night. <sighs> and, and, and we looked at each other. We looked at each other. You know, there's, there's like 15 of us in the room, uh, you know, from, from the U.S. listening to this. And obviously we're guests and we, we don't want to joke about stuff like this, but we're going, that's not a solution. No, 
That's that's <laughs> not even a band-aid for God's sake. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't even get that as a solution. But listen, it's it's different cultures. They have to they have to address stuff. I love the fact that that people are struggling to figure stuff out mm-hmm. and the results of, of doing something will be seen hopefully and measured and people can adjust. And I think it's, I think we have to do the same kinds of things. I think, I think corporations in this country have to do a hell of a lot more AB testing of uh, tools and technologies, et cetera, and then measuring the outcomes so that they can say, Oh, I am getting more value from doing this. What about so we we just actually just talked about on the last podcast uh Australia giving 12 weeks of pretty much vacation. So you're seeing kind of like this life leave. Life leave, yeah. And and we here in the US struggle to be not really as bad as as the Japanese with regard to our work is our life. But that's really that's been our culture, you know. Our work is our life and that is not that's not conducive to having a great life, right? So um, you know, how how do we here kind of push away from the Japanese way and go more toward the Australian way to be able to focus on our people? Do you think we're moving that way? Um, is it mainly just op- optics and bullshit that we're hearing? Or do you truly think that we're, we're going to start getting it right here in the U.S.? I think if you look at uh, normal distributions of populations, I think the the critical issue and the critical difference between us and Australia and other countries is is um, they've made choices mm-hmm. that allow for a, a much greater port part of the population to experience the same level of quality of life. Yeah, most of them have more social uh, socialistic. Let's socialism is is um, obviously a bad word in the United States these days but I submit that there are aspects of socialism that fundamentally a civilized country needs to address and that is things like healthcare education mm. uh, pension etc and most of those countries have done that and so when they talk about um, you know extending leave, they're talking about extending leave and paying people and giving them healthcare benefits and other kinds of things, not just for you and me who are making some decent bucks, uh-huh. but for everybody. Yeah. And our country, that's that's what we need to solve is what kind of a society do we want? We keep arguing over conceptual issues between whatever somebody wants to call conservative or Republican or Democrat or socialist. We have these weird uh, conceptual uh, fears about almost all of it. Yeah. And we, we have to come together and find that we've got a society that that is going to treat everybody well in certain things and then allow for a level of individualism, if you will, in other things. Right. And then we could start talking about stuff that Australia does or stuff that Denmark does or what have you. We'll never get to that if we can't decide what we will you know, spend money on. And otherwise, here's the problem. You and I might be able to work for a company that gives us a uh, a year's leave, paid leave, mm-hmm. that's subsidized by the government in some way, shape, or form uh, because of incentives. 
while somebody else is still, you know, homeless, right, uh, with their kids in the streets because they can't they can't get a minimum wage beyond seven dollars an hour. Yeah, they're the working poor. We need to take care of the working poor. We need to be able to help folks who, by and large, cannot work for legitimate reasons. We need to we need to come to agreements about that, and we need to we need to look at in the mirror. And and say, well, you know, these rules only apply to people who are a little bit more privileged. If you're a guest, if you're a guest worker and you're under 13, you still can work in the fields five hours a day. Fuck that. Keep an eye out for more Jerry Tales coming soon. So wash out. This has been the Chat and Cheese podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single show. And be sure to check out our sponsors because they make it all possible. For more, visit chadcheese.com. Oh yeah, you're welcome. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.